Welcome to the podcast of Amago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this series, Advent Conspiracy, as Pastor Rick takes a look at how the church can celebrate the incarnation in a way that is faithful and consistent with the narrative of Scripture. Jeremiah 33, Micah 5, and Isaiah 9. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteousness. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome. We're glad that you're here. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you a Bible. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We are in the season of Advent. This is the first official week of that after uh, Thanksgiving. So hope that you all had a good Thanksgiving. Essentially, we have started a new tradition here at Imago Day a few years ago called the Advent Conspiracy. And we looked at how Christ came into the world resisting the empire of Herod and the empire of Rome. We looked at how he gave, when God decided to give salvation, he gave a son, not stuff. And that he gave relationship. That he redistributed the glory and the wealth of heaven by becoming poor to make us rich. And so we said, what if we told a better story rather than the story of consumerism and mass consumption? What if we just took back our story and told the world that God has given a son and the biggest thing you can do with this son is worship him? And out of that worship, it's not just singing, but it's actually spending less money, learning to give meaningful gifts like things we make and gifts of ourselves and taking all the money that we don't spend and giving it away to the least of these. And last week, uh, I just heard a statistic that out of one water organization, which we've kind of targeted wells uh, for people who don't have clean water, child, children are dying every minute because they don't have access to clean drinking water. Um, and if you walk down the hall, you'll see there's little booths set up to help your kids kind of experience what it looks like to carry a few gallons of water for three miles. You can try it too. Those of you on the west side know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> and, and so uh, as of, I don't know, a week or so ago, there were over 300 wells dug by um, just a handful of churches. Uh, 200,000 people have access to clean water. And that's just one, one organization. And so there's hundreds of churches doing this and celebrating Christmas differently, telling a better story 
proclaiming that God has given us a son to worship. And so you've been part of that from the ground floor and you've started it. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be able to proclaim and celebrate the goodness of God in giving us Jesus Christ. One of the things that we do is we take an offering, and we'll tell you more about where that's going this year, but 100% of it goes out the door to some amazing initiatives that you'll get to hear about in the weeks to come. And so we'll start taking that offering next week, and you can keep bringing it in the whole time. We're really just asking you to take the money that you would normally have spent and give that away uh, for the glory of Christ. And it's amazing to see the spending power of even one church. In the last few years, it's been over $100,000 just by spending less money. But what we want to do in 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 our time together is really focus on applying the story to our life. God has given us a son to not only redeem us, but to empower us to announce and display His love all over the world. And so to display His love to our families, to display His love to our neighbors and our city, and to display His love to the world. And today we're going to talk about family. Since all of you just celebrated Thanksgiving, it seemed appropriate to start there. And since the holidays are usually a time where families find each other again, we wanted to talk about what it means for the love of God to come to the world to our families in Jesus through us. Family is the context where our spirituality is clearly, most clearly tested. It's most clearly seen in the context of our families. It's where the most evidence of our sinfulness gets collected. And sometimes it gets held against us. For the most part, however, we're not really interested in our spirituality or lack of spirituality in our families because we can't get past everyone else's lack of spirituality. Grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles, cousins, all the cute, bratty, adorable, and inconsolable nieces and nephews, grandmothers, grandfathers, moms, dads, stepmoms, stepdads, Brothers, sisters, stepbrothers, stepsisters, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, in-laws. You find yourself in the midst of this group of people and you're a member of this family whether you feel like it or not. No one asks if you feel like you belong. You ask, perhaps, but no one asks you. They all live imperfect lives, at least in your opinion they do, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that your family tree is a family tree of full-blown sinners. No one needs to explain that. We all just know it. And that this is the land that God places us in. This community of relationships shape us, perhaps more so than any other community of relationships. They frustrate us. They love us. They name us. We belong to our families, whether anybody acknowledges it or not. And yet when we think of living out our faith in a meaningful way, we seldom think of our families as a place to do that. We want to go to exotic places to do it. We want to go to Africa to be missionaries. Nobody wants to go home. (laughs) 
We pray not for mercy, but for patience. We pray that we can tolerate them, not display the love of Jesus to them. And the absence of certain family members just complicates this whole thing all the more. A father who left, a mother who passed away, a sister who's not talking to us, a son who's been gone for too many years. If we're going to take the gospel seriously, though, if we're going to take this Advent story seriously, then we can't simply go through the motions with our families. This community of people that we're related to actually becomes the very geography of our soul formation. And in order to understand what in the world is God doing with our family tree, we need to understand Jesus' family tree. God gave us Jesus Christ through a family tree that's full of love, full of scandal, full of sin, full of mercy. And in some ways, when you look at it, it's the most miraculous family tree of all in the history of the world. In other ways, it's the most ordinary. It's, br- it's just brutally human. And the biggest thing is that we need to re- remove the pious halo that we have on the pages of Scripture. And we need to let our imaginations help us to see the story of Jesus in the raw humanness of incarnation. And Matthew's genealogy is really the place to start. Matthew gives us this ordinary miracle of a family tree that brings us Jesus as God's way of bringing the love of Jesus to your family. And so let your imagination kind of capture the reality and the humanness of Jesus' family tree as you listen to the genealogy. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hazron, Hazron the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, 
Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Thus, there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. Matthew is doing something significant with his genealogy. And he's doing a lot more than just giving us a history of the family line. He's teaching us something about God. He's teaching us theology. In the very first verse, he says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. His record of genealogy is that there's a line of people who start out during the good years, go into the bad years, and then up again to the redemptive years. But these first two people, Abraham and David, are these two baskets of promises, the two major promises that God made in creating this family tree. The first was to Abraham when he said, through Abraham, his seed will be a blessing to the nations. That God's mercy and love would be universally offered. Not simply to one specific line of people, but to Jew and Gentile alike. And to David, he promised that there would be a king on the throne forever. That his kingdom would never end. Son of Abraham, son of David. And he lists four women. And there are four of the wrong women. If he was going to pick the true matriarchs, he would have picked Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's wives. But he picks four women who uh, you weren't really supposed to be talking about. And Matthew's doing it on purpose. He's not doing it on accident. Because Matthew is preaching the gospel through this genealogy. And the first woman he, woman he mentions is Tamar. And Tamar has Judah's child. Tamar was, husband had passed away, and the birthright was supposed to continue, and so the brother was supposed to fulfill his duty and give her a child. Only she kept getting passed up. And so one day she heard that Judah was going into the town and she dressed up like a shrine prostitute. Now she had to know something about Judah's appetites at that point uh, to know this was going to work. And so she dresses up and he notices her and she conceives and, and has this child. And she tells him, what I need from you is uh, security for the payment is I need your ring and I need your staff. And then she disappears. Judah looks for her and can't find her and then just says, well, let's let the whole thing die out. Then he hears that Tamar is with child and is ready to kill her. And Tamar, in all of her wisdom, sends the ring and the staff and says, I'm pregnant from the owner of these. And Judah soon realizes that it's his sin that caused this. And God makes sure that we understand Tamar 
as the great-great-grandmother of Jesus that this is a, a family tree of sinful people. And it's a family tree that preaches the grace of God. The second one is Rahab. Now Rahab comes into the story when the, the years of Exodus have ended and they're going into the promised land. And they send two spies into the promised land and they go in there essentially to scope it out and make sure it's the land that God promised as well as what they're getting themselves into. And they are being chased out, the two spies, and they go into this woman Rahab's house. She is a prostitute, a harlot. And she tells them this great confession of faith. I know that your God is going to give this land over to you. I know that your God is the one who destroyed Egypt and parted the Red Sea. And that your God has promised you this land. And when you come, please protect my family and I. And so they make a deal with her. They strike a deal and she puts a scarlet cord in the window so they know which house to protect when they go in to sack the city. And they take all Rahab and her family out and save her. And Rahab's story, and she finds herself in the genealogy to preach that this is not just about Jewish people and a pure lineage. This is a Canaanite woman with a bad track record and a God of mercy. Ruth comes into the story as a Moabitess. Someone who wasn't supposed to get into the family line. And Ruth is very much, um, well, she's fairly aggressive with a guy named Boaz. And Boaz is a great name, I think. It's, uh, it's my son Zach's second middle name. I couldn't quite convince my wife for even a middle name. I had to go second middle. But I still think it's a great name. And the whole story of Ruth is a story that preaches about God's redemption. A woman who is found gleaning in the fields, a woman caring for her mother Alon, a woman desperately in need of redemption. And Bo- Boaz comes in as the kinsman redeemer and redeems her to himself and she becomes the great-great-grandmother of Jesus. Preaching to us that this is a God who is going to be worshipped by every tribe and tongue about all people having access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. When we come to Uriah's wife, Bathsheba doesn't even get a mention. The fourth woman in our genealogy is simply called by the name of her husband, Uriah. Uriah, if you remember the story, is a general. He's, a, he's one of David's mighty men. And he's fighting... When all the kings go off to war, David stays home. And David looks out over and he sees Bathsheba bathing and he's very attracted to her and calls to her and she comes to him and then she's pregnant. Well, David calls Uriah off the front lines and says, this will be an easy fix. We just take Uriah, we bring him home, he'll be happy to be home, sleep with his wife, problem solved. Only Uriah was more righteous than David. So he slept out of the gate of the city and refused to go in and be with his wife. When word gets to David, he goes, well, we'll fix that tonight. We'll get him drunk because that usually works. And so he gets him drunk and 
he still refuses to go home, so he sends his own death sentence. He writes it out, hands it to Uriah, and says, give this to Joab. And Joab is told to put him on the front lines, and Uriah is killed. Adultery and murder from the best king that Israel had. The first line of genealogy, Abraham's seed and David's king, these four women that are Gentiles, morally questionable, they're not the right women, preach that this family tree is about God's mercy for all people. And believe it or not, these are the years when things actually are going right. This family turned into a nation. A nation turned into a kingdom. God gave them the land, a temple in the midst of the land, people with worship on their lips, people in God's mercy and promises creating this family. And then things go downhill. From Solomon to exile, we learn, and Matthew teaches us, that God, as well as being merciful and forgiving, is a holy God. And He's a God of judgment against wickedness. And as in any family, when God is forgotten, things don't go well. Kings guilty of great evil. Idolatry all over the house of Israel now. And God's judgment brings them to exile. In this place where all the promises that used to be seem to disappear. Babylon comes in and takes them away. Out of the land. Destroys the temple. Removes them from the heart of worship. And hope is gone. And the people weep. How can anything good come from a bunch of people like this? How can God possibly bring hope to the world through these people? Some of you look at your families and you ask that question. You see the judgment of God. You see the holiness of God. You see what happens when God is forgotten and people reject Him. And you ask yourself, how can anything good come from a bunch of people like this? When we move from the exile to Christ, however, we recognize that Matthew is also teaching us that this is a God who is faithful to His promises, and His promises aren't dependent on us. Which is good news for every family tree that ever existed. Judgment's never the last word with God. It's never supposed to be the last word. Judgment is there to wake us up and out of our unbelief. Just when everyone thought everything had fallen apart, God started putting everything back together. God is faithful to His promises and He promises a Savior. All the way back to Abraham. All the way back to David. He promises a Savior and He delivers one. God's love is merciful but holy. And finally, it's faithful. His faithful love. The way we look at this genealogy, we get insight into well, Matthew read the Old Testament. And the way that he understood all these stories through from Genesis to Exodus, all the way through Deuteronomy, all the way from uh, Joshua through Kings and Chronicles, Matthew read the Old Testament through the lens of the coming of the Christ. 
For Matthew, all God's loving mercy, holy judgment, and faithful love pointed to the child of the fifth woman, Mary. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was trying to say. Jesus is God's faithfulness in the flesh. The seed of Abraham, the son of David, in the womb of Mary. Now, as we look at Matthew's genealogy, we recognize that there isn't any, there's no family that isn't desperately in need of this kind of a God. A God who's merciful to sinners, forgiving, gracious, holy, and faithful. We need a God, a Savior like Jesus, because if we depend on ourselves, then we know how this thing goes. And there's no family that's too far gone. And I know some of you are sitting there scratching your head going, that's impossible, you don't know my family tree. But the truth is, with God all things are possible. There's only these ordinary sinful families, just like the one Jesus came from, whose great-great-grandma and grandpa were adulterers and liars and murderers and worshipers and founding fathers of the faith. And because God delivers us a Savior, Jesus enables you to love your family as well. Jesus wants to love your family this Advent through you. And so if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we won't be able to just simply go through the motions with our family. This community of people that we're related to becomes the very geography of the formation of our souls. All the one another's of the New Testament, we want to live them out in some other home community, some other small group, and once you get to know those people, then probably some other church. (laughs) But the place that we're called to live it out is in the context of family. Those people, that sister, this brother that son, this dad. The Holy Spirit shapes us through these relationships and gives us the opportunity to display the love of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, and the forgiveness of Jesus to these people. Advent is about the coming of Jesus. God's love and mercy, holiness and judgment, enduring faithfulness are incarnated. They become flesh in the person of Jesus. And Jesus becomes flesh by His Spirit through you. Showing up in a family of sinners just like yours, just like mine. This Advent is about Jesus coming. Showing up in your life in a tangible way through the way that you love your family. This morning we have sort of a sacred moment to hear from a girl who is experiencing this firsthand. Would you welcome with me Michelle Gordon as she shares her story with us? Good morning. Um, I'm here to share my testimony and I just want to say it's really a privilege to be standing up here and sharing this with you guys and what God's done. Um, So here I go. 
Um, my sincerest desire is to share the glory of God in this story. I am simply proclaiming his redemptive work in my life with a wounded but a pure heart. His work has been so profound, it surpasses any of my knowledge and understanding of who he really is and what he is capable of doing. This story is just another testimony to his power, but also his tenderness, to his grief over sin, but also his delight as we stand up to follow him. Most of all, this is a story of his love. He alone is able to turn the worst of circumstances into something beautiful and precious for his name's sake. He is a God that heals and who loves on us hard, and for this he deserves all of my praise. The first thing that I'd like to share is that I'm a sexual abuse survivor. My father abused me as a young girl, and though I cannot recall the length of time that it actually happened, I have a number of haunting memories that are still devastating to think about. After my dad was sentenced to 20 years in prison, my mother, younger brother, sister, and I were left with the many wounds of a broken family. I immediately took the responsibility for the abuse and began to experience the magnitude of my father's sin and the amount of shame that it brought to my soul. The traumatic experience was never discussed, and as a seven-year-old girl, I believed that it was my fault that my family life was in shambles. It soon became my secret that no one would ever want to know about, to speak of, or to try and understand. Besides a lack of communication and addressing the issue among my family growing up, my home environment was also void of any sort of affection and verbal and physical expressions of love. Amazingly, I felt that it was only by God's grace I did not hold any anger towards my father. Instead, I harbored resentment towards my mother for the betrayal that I felt from her and the little amount of nurturing that she offered me. I also loathed my brother and the ways that he acted out as a young boy growing up without the stability and the love of his dad. My sister remained timid, and overall it was a household where any sort of hurts were swept under the rug and you just figured things out on your own. By the time that I was 17, I could count on one hand how many I love yous and hugs were exchanged between my family members and I. I was exhausted from trying to withhold my needs of affection and my words of affirmation. As for my father, he sent me many letters while he was in prison. Though I can barely recall the content, I do remember him mentioning God many times and asking for his forgiveness for the mistakes that he had made. I was too afraid to write him back, but my feelings were more of compassion than anything else that though he seemed to be remorseful, he was still missing out on seeing his family. Though I didn't understand a lot of the feelings that I had growing up, I at least understood God's love and his kindness towards me. He nurtured me and cared for me so well that it was difficult to believe that he was not good. He was the only good that I really knew. He was my strong protector, my sweetest comfort, and my deepest source of love. 
as i drew from this understanding of him i began to sense that i needed to love my family in better ways and to let my father know that i forgave him for what he had done when i was 21 years old i scheduled a meeting with my dad's probation officer for the chance to tell him that he was forgiven there wasn't much of a response on his part but i knew that this was necessary for me to do in honoring god and starting to heal and to be set free from this dark secret as for my mother and my siblings i made every effort to show them affection regardless of the response i began to tell them that i loved them and gave them hugs each time we saw one another there was an initial discomfort but over time they began to soften towards my embraces as my own heart was being softened and transformed by the holy spirit i sent such fulfillment and satisfaction in giving these hugs and showing the affection that i began to understand more and more the purpose of god calling me to love i wish that i could say i've always done a great job at loving my family the way that god has desired and that it's always been easy but there is my selfishness pride and the painful effects of my own sin and brokenness that bring me back into god's grace it is his grace in me that shapes my understanding of where the compassion forgiveness and love in me could possibly come from after so many years of feeling ashamed and hurt i can only attest to the dramatic work of the cross and an inexpressible amount of love and grace that i have received from such a generous heavenly father that i am able to stand here and say these things with such sincerity he equipped me with all that i needed to extend myself to my family by offering me himself i love because he first loved me thank you for listening Michelle, thank you for risking and uh, for sh opening your heart up to us as a sacred space. <clears throat> so the question becomes, if Jesus came so that you can love your family, how will you do it? It obviously is awkward at moments. Have you ever received a hug from someone that didn't want one? Yeah, <laughs> is that to tap and let go kind of okay and yet she risked and she kept going and being persistent and that's how god's love comes to us in a genealogy full of sinful people just like the one jesus came from comes the gift of the sinless one who bears our sin on a cross to display the love of the father to the world so that you and I can receive that forgiveness and offer it. So, tell them that you love them. Show them that you love them. Forgive that person. Share something with them that they don't know about you. Let them in. Appreciate all that they have done for you that has gone unnoticed. Ask that person to forgive you. 
show compassion and empathy. And that's just a very, very short list. See, when God's at work in you, then the Spirit is creative enough to give you ideas if you're willing to participate with Him. And God is at work in all our families, whether we notice it or not. It's all His. He's redeeming it through Jesus. The seed of Abraham. The son of David. In the womb of Mary. Advent is about Jesus coming to love you and to love through you. And He wants to display His glory in the raw humanness of your family. So this morning we come to this table. A table that reminds us that this child that was born was born to die and to rise and to reign. And so as we represent a a family of faith, then we wanted to serve you communion today as well. So I'd ask those who are serving to come down. Don't let this freak you out. from participating. Uh, we, we often call it taking communion. But taking communion assumes that you have to go get it. And the truth is, this is a son who was given and who needs to be received so that you can give Jesus away as well. So as you come down this morning, you come down to worship this God the God of Matthew's genealogy, the God that proclaims forgiveness and grace, mercy, holiness, and a God whose promises are not dependent on how good your family's done. How will Jesus display Himself through you to your family this year? Let's pray. Father, we come to You today with thanksgiving in our hearts. We come to You grateful that You're a God of mercy and forgiveness. You're a God who announces Your great Gospel of Jesus Christ to all people from every tribe and tongue. To all sinners of which we are. That You're a God who's holy, who judges sin. And we recognize before You today that when You aren't at the center of our lives and our families, Things don't go well. And yet when everything seems to have fallen apart, you're the God who puts it back together. And your faithfulness isn't dependent upon us. Your faithfulness is dependent upon who you are. And so today we stand here to declare to each other, really, that Jesus has come. And that you're coming again. And that You're present here by Your Spirit to love our families through us. That You use our families to shape us even if we don't want You to. And this morning, above all, we declare that You are the good God who gave us Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, and the womb of Mary to be our King of kings and our Savior, and to give us access to You, our Father. And so we give You this time and this season so that we can worship 
this Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.imagodaycommunity.com.